transforms, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, our God who transforms. If you've got a Bible with you, my name is Nate. I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, turn it to John chapter 2. We've been working through the book of John as a church, and we're going to be spending most of the next year or so uh, in the book of John, which is super exciting to me. John is one of my favorite books. Uh, I spent a huge chunk of my life memorizing and working out of the book of John. And I am so excited this morning to talk about John 2. It is one of my favorite stories in the entire scripture. And as Pastor Jeff and others have laid out over the last several weeks, John is a book that brings us face to face with Jesus. And this book of John is written, it's one of the last books of the entire Bible that was written. And John has written this book probably about 15, 20 years after all the other Gospels are written. So all the other stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're already out there. And then John, an old man at the end of his life, is like, nah, now I'm going to tell you all the rest of the story. You guys know how they do that with movies where, like, you, you think you know, but did you know? Like, they got that new Willy Wonka movie with Timmy, Timothy Chalamet coming out now. And it's like, did you know about Willy Wonka when he was young? You know, like... They do this stuff. Now, I'm not saying that Timothy Chalamet is anything like Jesus, but that is the kind of book that John is. John is laying out for us that this Jesus is a completely different person than you think he is. This Jesus is something new, something different. And even though you think you know all the stories, you don't really know this Jesus. So this morning, we come to John 2. And John 2 is, it's either... Uh, <laughs> the end of the beginning, or it's the beginning of the end. But John 2, the first part is a snapshot into how Jesus is going to start his ministry. And John's going to say at the end of his book that Jesus did so many miracles that if we wrote them all down, the world wouldn't even have room for them all, for the books that we'd write. But John picked seven miracles, seven miracles in order to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name, which is kind of what we want people to believe. So John says there's seven things that Jesus did that show us something about him, that change all of our expectations, that turn everything on its head. And John 2 is the beginning of that. So this morning, I'm going to need your guys' help. I'm going to ask you guys to do things with me. Uh, as I speak, so uh, keep your heads on a swivel, be ready to go. Turn to John 2. If you do not have a Bible, blue Bibles uh, in the chairs in front of you, uh, grab one of those, keep it. That's our gift to you. Uh, stand with me, if you will. Let's read John 2 together. John 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding of his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it, come from, it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine till now. This, the first of his signs, 
Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way you've broken into this world with power and with grace and with truth and with love. We pray that you'd break into our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would do a transformation work on our hearts as we listen to your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The big idea this morning, the one thing that I want you to take away from this morning is that the joy Jesus brings cannot be separated from the sacrifice he made. The joy Jesus brings cannot be separated from the sacrifice he made. And the reason why that's the big idea we're going to unpack now as we go through this story. Love, love, love this story. We used to use this story all the time. We would use these seven miracles. When my wife and I were in Argentina uh, with Brian and Tara Gornick, and when we would meet people and we try to help them understand that Jesus isn't who you think he is, we would use these stories. As people would say, man, my child is sick. Uh, will you pray for me? And we'd say, you know, Jesus has the power to heal. And we'd tell them a story about how Jesus healed, and we'd pray for him. Or when they'd say, uh, man, I'm really struggling, and I don't, uh, we, uh, you know, I don't know how we're going to eat this week. We talk about Jesus multiplying loaves and fishes. We pray, and then we give people food. And when people would say, hey, I'm having a party, and I don't know about you evangelicals. I don't know if you guys go to parties. I don't know uh, if you come, but if you want to come to my birthday party, you're, you're invited to my birthday party. And we would say, let me tell you about what Jesus did when Jesus went to a party. He made more wine. And then we would show up and we would celebrate with them. This story from the very beginning changes everything we think we know, everything we think we expect about this Jesus. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, the last several weeks, we've been doing John 1, right? We've gone through John 1, and we've been introduced to this Jesus, and he's getting these group of disciples with him. And the thing I want you to keep in mind when you think about who his disciples were, they were kids, like the oldest of them was probably like Tez's age. Tez would have been the gray beard among the disciples. These were young, young men. John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He could have been as young as like 16, 17 years old. So when you see Zeke, when you see Scott, when you see Jair, that's what John was like. He was a young man. He was a kid. And so you've got Jesus who's 30 and he's wandering around with a bunch of kids with him. These guys were a rowdy group. And so they're excited. We're going to a party. We're going to a wedding. Now you got to think about John, right? John's old now. He's, he's in exile on an island. He's probably like 80 years old. And he's telling you stories about his best friend from when he was a kid. Don't lose that. Keep that in mind when you read these stories, when you hear these stories. You're hearing it from an old man talking about his best friend when he was 16. That is a special thing. If you've ever talked to your grandparents about their friends, about the old people from the neighborhood, like that's what you're getting from John here. He's not trying to tell you the story in order like Matthew 
or like Mark or like Luke. He's trying to help you know who this guy was. He's, he's writing about his best friend and the man that he followed then the rest of his life. So they were invited to the wedding with the disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, here's the thing that you've got to remember about Mary. Jesus, at the end of his life on the cross, he's going to actually tell Mary and John, like, hey, woman, this is, this is your son. Hey, John, this is your mother now. So when John's writing about Mary, he's writing about, he's writing about mama. Not his mama by blood, but his mama that he then took care of and lived and that she came into his house when he was a young man. Some of you guys know what that's like. Some of you guys know what that's like to have a woman who takes care of you who's not your mom, but that's who John's now writing about. And he remembers how Mary felt about Jesus. And she knows, she knows that Jesus is special. She knows that the time is almost ready, like something big is going to happen. And she wants to kind of give him a kickstart. You know how mamas are, right? Like, come on, son, let's go, you know. And so she says to him, uh, Jesus, like one of the things we're going to see in John over the next several weeks, people like to say things, but there's really a question there, right? They have no wine. Like she just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, Jesus. She's not asking him to do anything. She's just saying, she's pointing out, making an observation. Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, when he says woman, he's not being like, woman. He's saying, he's just like, mama, is this, you like, really? Is this, what does this have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. Because Jesus knows something about what it means once he kicks things off. Once it starts, it's only going in one direction. Now, Mary knows that her son is going to become the king of kings. She knows. She thinks she knows Jesus. She raised him. She had angels talking to her about him before she was born. She thinks she knows. She thinks she knows what's coming, and she's excited. Now, I think Mary probably knows it's going to be hard, right? It was prophesied over her. A sword's going to pierce her own heart, too. Like, I think she knew it was going to be hard and dark, but she knew who he was, and she had full faith in him. She wants this thing to get going. So she says, hey, Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, you know, man, my hour's not come. And his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love this. Like, he never agrees to do anything. He never says, yes, mom, I'm going to do it. Like, he just says, no, mom, it's not my time yet. And she just looks at him and just, like, puts him on the hook, right? Like, do whatever he tells you. So she's excited. And Jesus knows what's coming. And he's trying to, he's trying to warn her. He's trying to warn her. He's trying to gently warn her. Hey, you, you, maybe, you don't want this, maybe you don't want this to come the way you think it's going to come. The joy that Jesus brings cannot be separated from the sacrifice that he made. And at this point in time, Mary doesn't know that. She only knows, boy, this guy's something else. He is going to bring joy. He can solve all of our problems. He can rescue us. He can save us. The Jews were slaves to the Romans. They had Roman soldiers everywhere. Everyone was looking for a deliverer, a liberator. And Mary's like, my boy is the man. He's going to do it. Let's get on with it. And Jesus is just very gently like, oh, mama. It's not going to be like you think it is. The joy that he brings 
can't be separated from the sacrifice that he made. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So we take these jars, and they would do ceremonial washing and cleansing with the water that was put in them. Each one of these jars is holding 20 or 30 gallons. So these are big, huge stone jars. So he says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Now I'm going to hit pause right here. We're going to talk a little bit about water in the book of John. Because again, John's not trying to tell you what happened, like just the facts, like first this, then that. John is trying to make a point. He's trying to tell you all the things that you didn't realize about this Jesus. And water is one of the major things that he symbolizes throughout the whole book. He actually starts at the very beginning of his book. And uh, Pastor Jeff laid this out really beautifully, right? There's a direct connection between in the beginning was the word. When good Jews would have heard that, they would have heard in the beginning. And most of us make that, that same connection. And we think in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? We make that connection. We hear it and we know what John's talking about. So I need a couple volunteers. I need somebody on this side of the room to look up Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Somebody who's willing to read it, find that, look it up. It's on page 1. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Somebody over here, grab that. And then somebody over here, look up John 1, 1 through 4. And I'm going to ask you guys to stand up and read these things out loud. So somebody, stand up and read me Genesis 1, 1. Come on. I told you I need help. Do it loud. Good. John, 1-1. One, one. You got the voice, Zeke. Belt it. Okay. Genesis 1-2. Loud. And the Spirit of God was what? Read one more time, real loud. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering over the face of the waters. John 1, 2, and 3. Okay, Genesis 1, 3. Jair. John 1, 4. Okay, that's good. Thanks, guys. Do you guys hear it? Do you hear the combination that's happening here? So John starts his book, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and Jesus was with God. And he was the light. And when we get into Genesis, in the beginning, God made the heavens of the, and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And Genesis uses this concept of waters to describe the uncreated, just, I don't even know if it's stuff, I don't know if it's poetry, but the chaos, the swirling, I don't know what it is. But he, Genesis uses the word waters. And John, because he wants you to remember Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he's bringing in this idea of the waters right from the very beginning. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And where was God? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Water in the book of John symbolizes 
the inferiority of the physical world. When John wants to talk about the physical world, he's going to talk about waters. And we start seeing this throughout the book. John 1.33, right? John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So you're going to start to see this combination between water and the Spirit. But it started way back in Genesis 2, right? The Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Spirit's going to take those waters and create everything out of it. And John the Baptist is like, I baptize with water. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. John 3, 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone's born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So John's saying, unless you're physically born and spiritually born, you can't see the kingdom of God. In John 4, 13, Jesus says, Every, he's, at the, he's at the well, right? He's at the well with a Samaritan woman, and he asks for a drink. I'm going to ruin every sermon for the rest of the year to this morning. He is there at the well, and he says, hey, give me a drink. She's like, are you really asking me for a drink? And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty. The water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John 5, there's a paralyzed man. And he's laying beside, anybody know what he's laying next to? A pool, right? A pool of water. And he's like, hey, I want to get healed and I want to get down in that water. But I can't get in the water. I can't get healed. And Jesus comes along and heals him. In John 6, the disciples are in a boat and there's a storm. And who is out walking on the water? Jesus. John is writing during a time in which a group of people were going around claiming to have secret, special knowledge. There's this secret, spiritual knowledge, and we're the only ones that know it. And the idea that they had was that the world was evil. Our flesh was evil. Everything physical was evil. And because our flesh is evil, nothing that we do in our bodies matters because it's all evil. So we should, the logic is not great here, guys. That we should be able to do whatever we want <laughs> in our physical bodies, because it's all evil and it's all bad. And Jesus clearly couldn't be evil, so Jesus didn't actually physically ever come physically to the world. He was just like a ghost. It was ghost Jesus. So they basically believed in ghost Jesus. And Jesus was just like a spirit. He kind of like floated around and did stuff. He didn't really live. He didn't really come on the earth. He didn't really die. And John is repeatedly trying to show, no, no, no. He was a real man. He was my best friend. He was superior to the waters. He was part of this physical world, but he was superior to it. So you guys, as we keep working through this book of John, keep your eyes and your ears open for what Jesus says about water and about the spirit. So now we get back to the story. John is clearly setting up something. Jesus is interacting with the water. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. The water is meant to cleanse, to purify. And Jesus says, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now take some out, draw it, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, didn't know where it come from. 
even though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine till now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. This part of the story is awesome. It's super fun, right? Jesus makes amazing wine. He, it's a miracle. Everybody is partying and happy and thrilled. Mary has a glass of this wine, and she's like, my boy. She, everybody is having a party. Now, listen, I don't want to offend you good Baptists out there. They're like, this was like grape juice. That makes no sense. <laughs> this is not grape juice, people, because the master of the banquet says everybody else drinks this kind of wine first, and then they get drunk, and then they have too much. So I don't know how they were ever getting drunk on the grape juice. This is not grape juice. Jesus is making real wine. This is a party. They are having a rager. <laughs> the disciples, a bunch of young men, are freaking out. They can barely keep a lid on it. This is the best dude ever. <laughs> Look at this party. Everyone's happy. Jesus is all about joy. He's all, amen. He's all about joy. Everyone is happy. And to this day, there's places you'll go and sermons you'll hear. And it's good to talk about Jesus is all about joy. But for some people, that's all, that's just where it stops. He's all about joy. He's about to bring you wealth, success, happiness. He's going to free you from all kinds of persecution. Nothing bad is going to happen. Jesus is all about joy. But there is another metaphor at work. At MC this week, Allie says to me, young, young lady says, you know, I'm reading this, and uh, could it be that when he turns this water into wine, does, you know, we take communion, and does that, does that wine maybe symbolize something else? Yes. Yes, yes, sister, that comes from the Spirit of God. Yes, the wine does symbolize something else. There's a whole other metaphor. And I brought it up when we mentioned communion, and we know what wine symbolizes. Yes, Jesus is all about joy, and everyone is feasting and celebrating. But the water that was meant for purification has been replaced with this wine. Instead of being cleansed with water, purified with water, we're made happy and joyful by his blood. This is the thing that he's laying out. This is what even embedded in this big time party that he's throwing and making his mama happy and showing off for the, like even embedded in that is the idea that all of this joy doesn't come without a sacrifice. John 6.52, the Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. John knows we know the end of the story. Like, there's no... No one's pretending here, like, who's this Jesus and what's he about? Like, John is writing this in order, because you already know Matthew, Mark, Luke. You already know that Jesus is going to die. You already know about communion, about the bread and the cup and what they symbolize. And that's why John is showing you, even from the beginning, he was taking the water 
He was taking the physical world and he was going beyond it. He was sacrificing it. He was turning it into his own blood. And that gives a different color. Everybody's having a party. Everybody's tripping out. Everybody's so happy. Wow, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. But even there is Jesus' sacrifice. John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow water rivers of living water tucked into a story about a wedding and a party and the best wine is the realization that Jesus isn't just all about joy. The joy comes through his sacrifice. He was also going to die. And I'm not going to spoil what Jeff's going to talk about next week. But next week, John's going to take a story from the end of Jesus' life and bring it to the beginning, and it's going to reemphasize this point. Now think back to that conversation with Mary. She's like, Jesus, let's get the show on the road. And Jesus is like, Mama, you don't know what you're asking. He's not who any of them thought he was. He's not who any of them thought there was. He's winding together John keeps winding together these ideas of blood and water and the spirit throughout his book because Jesus came to a world of water and he redeemed it with his blood. The water proves that he came to the world as a man and the blood proves he was victorious over it. John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came a flow of blood and water. John's setting it up for the end, right? At the end of the book, when Jesus is crucified, when they prove he's dead, out of his side is going to flow blood and water. And it's not an accident. It's not a mystery. In John 2, when he takes the water and he turns it into wine, and then at the end, water and blood are flowing out of his body. The joy Jesus brings can't be separated from the sacrifice he made. You can't separate the two things. So my application points this morning are going to be pretty simple. Number one, Jesus is all about joy, and we should be about joy too. If there is no joy in how we talk about Jesus, if we don't feel joy at the wonder that he brings, if we're not drinking his blood and experiencing eternal life, if we're not drinking water that quenches our thirst, if we are not celebrating at the wedding, there's something deficient. There's something missing. There's something absent in how we think about Jesus. He is all about joy. And there is no way to talk about the good things Jesus brings without also talking about the cross at the same time. You cannot get health, wealth, and prosperity from the story of Jesus because it has a cross in it. You can't get the party and, the, and the, the celebration at the wedding without also recognizing they're drinking wine. All of that's made possible because of what he is going to do. Finally, the final point of application is going to come straight from 1 John. This was a difficult and dark week in the world. We saw horrible things over the weekend, uh, likes of which I think very rarely been seen. Uh, 
in, in Israel. And now we're seeing millions of people displaced and full-on war in the, in the Holy Land. And Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome this world. Again, keep in mind, this idea of the world is tied up with this idea of water. Jesus is Lord over the water. And he's going to warn us that sometimes there's storms on the sea. Sometimes it's going to be troubling. Sometimes it's going to be turbulent and dark. But he has overcome the world. 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we're children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the same John. The same John who writes the book of John is writing this letter of John, and he's saying, hey, guys, this world, it's turbulent, it's evil, it's dark, but Jesus has overcome it, and we can have victory as well. If we are born of God, you want to overcome the world with its war, its deceit, its murder, its hardships, believe in Jesus. The one who turns the water into wine, the one who saves the children, the one who heals by the pool, the one who multiplies the bread, the one who walks on the water, the one who heals the blind, the one who raises the dead. If you want victory, if you want to overcome, you have to believe in Jesus. And then this is what John says, 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only. He didn't just come to this world. He didn't just throw a party. He didn't just make the party great. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. Jesus is saying, John is saying, that the way that we know that Jesus is who he said he was is that he physically came into the world and he died. And the Spirit brought him back to life. The water, the blood, the Spirit, they testify. There's three that testify, the Spirit, the water, the blood, verse 7. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, in other words, if you believe the stuff people say to you, and, and we all do, right? We believe things that people say to us. You know, some of us are... Uh, question more than others but you know generally speaking people tell us a good story we're like yeah okay i'll believe that if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for this is the testimony of god that he's born concerning his son whoever believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself and whoever does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony god born concerning his son this is the testimony god gave us eternal life and this life is in his son Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have your life, does not have life. If this isn't your Jesus, if your Jesus doesn't bring joy through his own suffering, if you're not hearing the testimony of the water and the blood and the Spirit, come to him. Come to him. If you don't know this Jesus, this is the Jesus, this is the man, this is what God wants you to know. He came into the world. And he suffered, and he's made alive in the spirit. He's overcome the world. He took the water, and he made it into the wine. And friends, 
Brothers and sisters, the day is coming when the best wedding feast of all is going to take place. When, the, when Jesus himself is the groom and the bride will say to him, you saved the best for last. That's what's coming. He's going to overcome all this. All of the pain, all of the murder, all of the suffering. This is the best wine we've ever had, we'll say. Because his blood gave us life. He saves the best for last. So the first miracle that he did to take a wedding and make it crazy joyful and bury in it the idea that that joy comes through his sacrifice, that very first thing he did, it mirrors the very last thing. When at the wedding supper of the Lamb, all of the saints of God, all of the people who have gone before us will be joined together with them all and will celebrate Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And we will say, you saved the best for last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, and we thank you that we remember you each week, that we remember your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. We thank you each week, each day, each hour, that you have overcome this world and its waters, that you have triumphed and you offer that triumph back to us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you transform not just water into wine, but sinners into sins. Thank you and bless this day. Amen.